welcome to the Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Robin King. And I'm Stephanie Shockley. And we're your hosts. Today, we are talking with each other about the documentary Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. Crip Camp came out in 2020. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature and looks at the impact Camp Jeanette had on the disability rights movement. both agreed that we would um, screen the, the movie be, you know, a certain amount of time before we recorded this episode. So we both screened it separately over the weekend. Um, and this is the first chance we've had to talk about it. Although we've been wanting to raise this movie as a discussion topic for months and months now. From the, almost the very beginning of the podcast, I think this has been on our list. Yep. So I guess the first thing, uh, one of the first things I would say is spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, we're going to probably, it's going to be spoilers all over the place. Um, if this is on your like list of movies to see, go watch it and then come back and listen to this episode afterwards. Because it is worth seeing, not cold, but it's worth seeing maybe without our commentary <laughs> about it. Like have, have your experience and then come back and listen to our experience. Now, of course, the it is a documentary, so it is based on what actually, you know, on what actually happened, and it traces a story over a number of, of decades, starting at summer camp. Yeah, it starts at Camp Jeanned, and I did look up Camp Jeanned. Camp Jeanned is in the Catskill Mountains, um, and it was established in the 50s. And then in the 60s and 70s, I mean, the 60s and 70s happened everywhere, including at Camp Jeanette. And they got some new staff. And I think there was a twist from a more structured camp environment, it sounds like, to sort of like an, an uncamp thing to apply like the unconference. Oh, uncamp, un, or like uncamp, unschool, unconference, yeah. unright. Okay. The Wikipedia talks about it as they were interested in developing a camp culture that was more unstructured than their previous camp experiences. I should have looked it up, but I didn't. But a question I had, who is the sponsor? Like who owned the camp? Who paid for this? Did you, were you able to figure that out? Because it wasn't really covered in the movie. It was not. Yeah, they sort of just accept the concept of the camp and then move on to the impact it had. I, I didn't go looking for that. I know it eventually closed due to finances. And then I, it looks like there's been some efforts to sort of reopen it and reestablish it and then it closed again was it always a camp for it sounds like it was established as a camp for disabled children teenagers and adults okay so it was always oh it looks like there was a foundation a parent-led foundation that established it in the 50s as like a traditional camp and of course college students recruited for summer jobs and and all that and then somehow it kind of 
caught the like hippie culture. It was the 60s and 70s. 60s and 70s. And, yeah. Crip Camp picks up at Camp Janand really around the early 70s. In large part, and I love this. Like I, I want to rewatch this several times now because I think it might be clearer on a rewatch. But one of the directors, writers, and co-producers attended Camp Janed and shot some film during his time as a camper that gets used as some of the historical footage that's used in the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, that. so that was so cool. Um, I love this. There was so much archival footage because whatever it was that he was working on was connected with some, you know, film group or something in the city. So they had the reason in New York City. The city, yeah, New York City. So they had the resources to get the equipment up into the Catskills for him to go around and talk to people and, and, and like put all of this, all these interviews and whatever on film. Because, like, Robin, you and I both have very important and formative summer camp experiences. How much of your summer camp experience is on film, right? <laughs> yeah, almost none of it. Like, and none. I, I, I worked at camps in a time when we had like cell phones. <laughs> Not like we didn't, we did not advocate campers having that, but like cell phones existed and you could video things with them. I mean, and it's mostly good that my camp experience is not archived anywhere, um, other than I have a handful of photos and things like that, but they're just still photos that you went and got, you know, developed. You don't know what they look like until weeks later. (laughs) Right. Oh, look, we took a picture of somebody's hand. That was dumb. Right. Nobody Um, actually has their eyes open in that one, and half of them are not looking at the camera. Hey, in our defense, we all have albinism and we can't open our eyes in the sun. Cut it out. No. (laughs) We had no defense. (laughs) But, um, but, right, it's like, it was so, it's really cool that, I mean, this movie wouldn't have existed in, in its current form if these archival reels of of film didn't exist I mean, it's pretty amazing the archival reels like i feel like if we had to turn campers loose with video cameras it would be very analogous to what we got yes yes it's people just <laughs> saying things and not not like randomly but it's not scripted it's not thought out it is very slice of life very the best version of random but it it does, I think, give you a sense of the community that the so much like future activism is both formed by and rooted in. Right. So you get all these kids who were so isolated, so so isolated, and not and had basically no rights and. You put them all together in one place at one time. A lot of them had never met anybody else in a wheelchair. Like a revolutionary experience for them. And so important that I I kind of feel like that later on when people that they, that they had that connection with, when they said, do you want to do this thing? Or can you help me with this thing? Or whatever it was like for, for Camp Jeanette, I will do anything. That's what it kind of felt like. Like whatever you want, I will move to Berkeley. I will do this. I will do that. I will... You know, like there was a bond that came out of their their time together because it was like the first place most of them had really felt heard, wanted, cared about um, as as actual humans, as opposed to a, a bunch of problems, a disability to be dealt with or whatever. 
Well, and it's also clear, like there's the old footage of, I, I think it's Judy Human trying to figure out menus by committee. <laughs> we never which... find out what they have for dinner on Wednesday. And I Did they have the lasagna or not? <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't. I, I, yeah, right. I couldn't figure out whether lasagna won or not. And I just, that's an issue. Um, <laughs> um, but I remember watching it and going like, this feels so accurate. And then later in the movie, you watch her taking like what feels like the same approach i'm sure it is informed by experience and she would say there are differences but it's like the same group consensus approach to leading sit-ins she's such a force oh my gosh she's such a force holy cow i mean in all ways like obviously from the lasagna you know lasagna gate like she i just just sort of radiated this sense of of like leadership but that horizontal, like decision making, like not the hierarchical, but the the desire to incorporate everybody um, and to hear from everybody, and um, she, oh, man, she's such a she's such a force. So I want to I want to stick with some of like the, the older parts, the Camp yes. Ned parts, because there are so many parts of this that I was just like both so grateful it is recorded and so struck. Um, like we get a few clips from it looks like some discussion about living at home and your relationship with your family, mm-hmm. which if you have spent a lot of time around disabled space is still an, is still super relevant. That is still a conversation that happens. But then we get uh, there's one section, one period of time, it sounds like where the uh, they sort of quarantine by gender because they've got an STI breakout. So funny. Oh my gosh. But it is very accurate to what happens when you put a bunch of teenagers in a space for a number of weeks. Yep. Also, though, there is such a problem in disabled space with being seen as people who have sexualities and sexual desire and sexual drive. I'm like, I love that in the 70s, they're just like, yeah, we have a little uh, SDI breakout going. Um, We're dealing with it. I mean, there were so many things about this that were were like, oh, God, it was a different time, right? Yes. And like, even so, like, in, in a much more structured camp in the 80s, a lot of what happened in that film would have been completely awful and that would never have happened right oh yeah, um, yeah there, even there as were. wild and feral as we were in the 80s we never approached camp Jeanette, right like that at summer camps in the 80s that was never like that but but um having said that and having said there were so many things that like wow you would never do these things today it would not be appropriate it would not be policy you could never it just that staffer would get fired and should right like just i want to put that out there like not that it's appropriate and not that this that is great but at the same time there's just such a sense of like community and freedom and um you know it was fully in the hippie space right it wasn't like oh we're hippies but because these people are disabled we're not going to like treat them like just like everybody else like all the hippie values and vibes are just kind of (laughs) there it's um yeah it was it was it's it's wild it was very much a different time too though like we, for as far as working with teenagers like oh my goodness our camp was only a week long they had like four to eight weeks at a much longer camp season 
for the same group of people to be there, it seems like. Well, and that's the thing I that's the thing that kind of amazed me as the film was going on. I said to my husband who was watching with me, I said, um, how long are they there? <laughs> like they're there forever. And the Wikipedia article says four to eight, four to eight weeks. Um, and I never knew of a camp session I participated in that was more than two, I think. I did three weeks somewhere once, but I feel like today that longer like that longer term of camp is um, more class related. So if you are able to afford that sort of camp, if you're a little wealthier, you're more likely to have access to that. Right. But if you think, if I think about the intensity of two week, my two week camp experiences, then you take that and you double it or you quadruple it. I mean, the intensity of that experience and the ability, like, the sense, especially if they've never, if, if you're dealing with a lot of campers who have never really had this kind of experience before, it would just begin to feel like the only reality that existed. Yeah. I mean, in the best possible way. <laughs> also gives you enough time to really get into the grittiness of what are we having? Like, how are we eating? How are we behaving in a way that actually is sustainable community? Right. Like if you're doing something for a week, I mean, for for to, you know, even a couple of weeks. But like, if you're doing something really intense for a week, you can do a lot and still not engage, like on multiple levels of your identity and being. If you're doing something for four weeks, and again, this is like pre ADA. This is not a camp that is built to any level. It looked like of what we would necessarily call accessibility these days. <laughs> Um, just because it was for disabled people didn't mean they actually built it for disabled use but you have to learn how to solve make decisions and solve problems and deal with interpersonal conflict at a different level because they aren't leaving at the end of the week and neither are you you're, you're stuck there together so the film like it starts at Camp Jeanette and then it I feel like it, it cuts back and forth a little bit we get some we, we sort of move forward in the disability activism world without losing like the camp Jeanette basis. There's still cuts that go back to that or references to it in the film. Yeah. So, you know, people move on, like they go, they grow up, they graduate high school, they go to college, they, you know, all these, all these things, at least, you know, at least some of them and they start finding each other in other spaces. So do you know why they all wound up in Berkeley? Because I think I do. It doesn't talk about it, but there is a reason. Um, not 100% sure, actually. Okay, so this, uh, um, I, we will put a link to this in the liner notes. Right before this is the first big independent living push in the U.S., which happens at Berkeley. It's Ed Roberts, who has like a brief cameo in the film one or two. Oh, i see yeah he okay. is one of one okay. of the key people who creates the systems and legal right to live on his own as an adult so a lot of camp Jeanette attendees i think wound up in berkeley because that was the place they could have the most independence um so the podcast i listened to stuff you missed in history class did a fabulous episode on ed roberts and the independent living movement we will put a link to that in the liner notes because yeah, when I saw him pop up, I was like, "Ooh, ooh, I, I think I, I think I know what they don't dwell on." Because that could be like its own, could totally be its own thing. 
Right. I mean, because that was before before Section 504, before the ADA in the United States, that was what you, you know, whatever your disability was, what you depended on was like local culture, local efforts, local whatever. If you happen to have access to something, then you got to do things that other people with the same disability didn't get to do. So like you happen to have access to this person in Berkeley, or if you happen to, you know, um, when I was young and I heard that there were schools for the blind, I always, I always assumed that they were like these, like, this is terrible, but I always assumed that they were these sort of like, I don't know, places where people were coddled and didn't like not very rigorous and didn't really learn anything. And that actually the opposite, the history of not all of them, but many of them is true. Um, so people that had access to some of the schools for the blind were the early, really high achieving blind people because the, there was like, they were so rigorous and a lot of the like, Oh, they can't do it because they can't see stuff. None of it was tolerated. So those are the people that were like the early like blind uh, lawyers and other kinds of professionals because they went to these places where they were just like, no, you're going to be able to do everything. So it was really like, if you got lucky enough to get access to a thing, an environment where they had a different view of whatever disability was than the rest of society, um, it was a really big deal. Or if your parents happened to talk someone into educating you or, you know, whatever. Well, and I mean, we see this now. You talk to when you talk to people with the same or similar diagnoses, or even just symptoms. Like that's when you often get the real information about how to successfully do things. <laughs> uh, whether that is like, oh, try this treatment, or at least talk to your doctor about it, or it's just like, oh yeah, I solved that by doing X, and you're like, that will work, right? Right. Well, it just, it reminds me of the, um, of the thing that Nancy Eastland talks about where, um, the thing about disability, people with disabilities as a minority is they don't get to grow up in a minority culture. Generally, there's nobody around unless it's, unless they grow up in like, if they're deaf and grow up in deaf culture, which is different, but otherwise you generally are like the only person in maybe in your family that has whatever this thing is. And, nobody knows about it and until you're around people who also know there's like there's a piece that's missing um it's not like it's not like other other kinds of minority groups um so it's it's really interesting because it's like they create that's what happens with camp Jeanette and then with berkeley and whatever like and the then they have like the center for independent living i forget what it was called um but like yeah they create this oh that all like their own universe and culture where there are other people telling you kind of like, Hey, this is what's possible. So yeah, some of what happens in Berkeley is the combination of that pre-existing disability activism in Berkeley, but then sort of like super fueled as people from this summer time at Camp Jeanette begin to move there. Out of this comes Things like the 504 sit-ins, which I, the movies, the documentary spends a, a fair bit of time on, I feel like. And I'm so glad they do because it is so crucial and beautiful and heartbreaking. Oh my gosh. I thought I was going to have trouble with the camp portion of it, right? Because the camp vibe I recognized, like in a way that I can't even explain. <laughs> 
right? I mean, it's like, it was the camp vibe of all camps, right? All camps have some of that vibe. And, but the disability camp vibe was about it was very familiar to me. It had, it was, the vibe was more like my experience at Drew University, but it was very, very, like I got, the vibe was very similar. And so I thought I was going to have a really hard time with this movie because of the camp piece of it. I'll tell you, the 504 sit-ins is what actually did me in. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. It's probably my favorite part of the movie. I was so oh, absolutely blown away. I knew of the existence of them before this, but I don't think I fully understood. Yeah, this is something I had I had learned about, but it was it was so entirely different and more intimate watching how the documentary covered it. I mean, again, it's another example of, oh my gosh, there's archival footage from inside the the building. Yeah. Through the sit-in. I did not look this person up, but it seemed like there was a reporter who sort of self-embedded with them um, and got all of this footage and all of, um, did interviews and was reporting on it when everyone else was ignoring it, it sounded like. Yes. So that is where that footage comes from. And they had, I mean, he was interviewed extensively in the film too. So, which is, it was cool to see. Um, and I, you know, it never really covered his motivation. Like he can't, so not that you can't just care about it. And cause you're a good person and you care about what happens to other people. That's okay. They, that's a thing. That could be a thing. But I find usually with disabilities, a lot of times with able, like just with like mostly with able-bodied people, it's usually when there's somebody in their life and they kind of wake up to it and they go, oh, wait, this is really important. Yeah, he's, he has one line in the film that's like, I just love this kind of story, but he, but that doesn't mean he winds up like in the room with people doing the sit-in. You can love that kind of story and, and miss, miss that it's actually happening right now. Right. Well, and he also seems to have a very, a very like, um, yeah, like a very rebellious shriek and he's just kind of like anybody who's like you know f the system i'm i want to hear about you i want to talk to you i mean there is definitely that but i kind of yeah i was kind of wondering like where i was just very curious if there was somebody in his life in his past how did he get connected with these people because he seemed to like really to get it enough to embed in that space and to be in that space day after day after day after day and he shows up and they do interview him I mean, and at least in what they show us, he doesn't center himself in that story. No, actually, that's true. No, it doesn't seem like it. I think when we think of like news coverage now, we think of, you know, the talking head standing outside the thing, telling you about what's going on and how they're feeling about it and the atmosphere. And he seems much, and again, like, I don't know if there's more footage. They could be picking the clips that tell the disability-centered story they're interested in in the documentary, but it seems like he is interested in hearing from the people doing the thing. Is he the one who talks about, and we couldn't, he would like never, this is not, not the way we would talk about this today, but it, I think this was the quote and it was just fantastic. The occupying cripple army. I think he's, I think it is. That's out. Yeah. I don't remember who said that, but I <laughs> Somebody did said love something it. about the occupying cripple army or the whatever. And I was like, that is such a weird and inappropriate way to put it. And yet it's, 
freaking amazing. <laughs> like that was just so fantastic. And I, you know, I said to my husband, I said, you know, I've spent a lot of time in act in activist spaces, and there were lots of pieces of this that are out of the larger activist movement. The way things were done, the language they use, the songs they sing are part of larger, larger activist culture. There's, you know, there's an activist culture, but I'd never seen true, honestly, truthfully, I'd never seen like the wheelchair with the power fist in the before, or like all of those um, uses of like the radical symbols. I've never seen them mixed in with the disability uh, justice angle, um, which is fortunately maybe a little bit of a criticism of the current activists spaces honestly in the, that exist right now but um because the disability justice issue has gotten left behind in a lot of activist spaces but it seemed to be more integrated in that time period and i just loved seeing all like the the signs and the symbols and the the 504 sit-ins are the sit-ins that let me see if i can find a good synopsis of this because it's very complicated we're not gonna again whole things could be done on this but just to give you a context of what's what the film is talking about this happens in the late 70s there is a it's section 504 of the rehabilitation act which has not been signed uh, it is one of the first pieces of legislation that grants rights to people with disabilities on a federal level people realized and in the film we focus a lot on judy human who is was a major force in leading the sit-ins and in, but what they did is they realized if they left the building they would continue to be sort of like yes latered by politicians so they just shut down government buildings by sitting in and refusing to leave i don't remember the name of the de what the department was called then but the secretary of health of what we i guess now would call health and human services kept putting off putting off putting off signing and enacting and whatever dealing with section 504 and finally they were like that's fine we'll just pick a like a federal government building in berkeley or you know where where they were and or whether it was san francisco i forget i'm sorry they're like right in the same area but anyway like yeah we're just gonna stay here we're not leaving sorry I think it happened in a couple different places. The California one is the most famous. Yeah. Well, they also went to, they they did what they, in, in activist circles, they call bird dogging, which is when you like follow somebody around. So they went to this, the, the guy's house in the DC area. No, wait, that's, is that later? I think that's later. They did a bunch of things. There was something in St. Louis. This, I think they shut down New York briefly by stopping traffic. That was early. If you've ever been in New York, if really, if you stop one street, everything else gridlocks. I loved that. So, yes, I loved that so much. They picked a major street in Midtown, the major intersection in Midtown um, during rush hour. And and the thing is, and I've seen this happen in within the last I don't know, 10 years, when the police show up and there are a bunch of wheelchair users blocking an intersection, the police go, oh, I don't know what to do. And they just walk around and talk on their walkie-talkies a lot and get confused. Um, that has been my observation in, in person. And so that's what it looked like happened that day. They just took over an intersection and shut down Manhattan. Um, it's fantastic. I think that was earlier when they were still for the sit-ins, but it's part of like the protests around 504. Now, the 504 protest in California, which is the big one, the one that they pay the most attention to. Do you get the feeling that it was planned or that it just kind of happened because they got frustrated and they couldn't get anything to work? 
in the document in Crip Camp, I think it's definitely implied that there's a bit of impromptuness to it. Okay, that's what I thought. I also think that you have people who are longtime disability activists who know how to protest. So we often talk about Rosa Parks sitting down on the bus, for example, as impromptu, and it wasn't. No, it was that was tried and staged, and that is a valid way to do a protest and draw attention to an issue. Exactly. She was part of the movement, and they chose, they eventually um, asked her if she would do it. This seemed very like, we got so frustrated, we're just not leaving. We're done. We're not leaving. There's a quote in the movie that I, I don't have in front of me, but Judy Human is ref- like reflecting on what happened and she says something like i'm just sitting there listening to him talk and i realize if we leave he's never going to care about this so we couldn't leave so they didn't leave no they didn't they didn't leave and and then again because they're well-connected disability activists in the group they a know how to organize a disabled community they have connections to other activist groups gonna say this is the part where we start cheering in my house because then the panthers show up panthers show up (laughs) oh my the panthers show up and they bring breakfast lunch and dinner every day and i mean we're like we're like cheering on the sofa in my house Um, and there's a great quote that's reported from one of the Black Panthers because uh, somebody asked them why they're doing this. And they said, you're for freedom and we want to support that. I'm watching it and I knew that was coming and I'm just like waiting for it to happen. Then it happens and it's even better than I could imagine. I didn't know it was. I actually didn't. I should have known, but I didn't know it was coming. So like, the Panthers showed up. I mean, of course they did. Right. But I, I just... I didn't, I didn't realize it. And the other thing that was interesting is Judy Human is she's chronicling um, the ways in which the authorities try to mess with the activists who were camped out in this building. Um, and it was funny because I, I said to my husband later, she starts listing things that they did to them. And I think that maybe some people watching it would have been like, oh, come on, did they really do that? Or really, are you sure? But, you know, if you've spent any time in those spaces, you know that this is all totally legit. So she's like, all right, so the FBI cut off the phones and then they cut off the hot water. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course they did. <laughs> That's what they do. Of course they did, because you're pesky and annoying and you're causing problems and they're you know now you're in this building and i don't think they touch on this element of the logistics and you're wondering why didn't they just like evict them some of it is there are things like wheelchairs in there but a lot of it is part of what 504 is supposed to do is guarantee accessibility to building government buildings so it's actually really tricky to get people with assistive devices out of a government building because it is not designed for them to get into the building. They didn't really cover how they got to the fourth floor, but I assume it was not fun. They do touch on the, the physical sacrifice of being there. It is a lot to occupy a building. It's a lot to occupy a space. If you've ever spent any time at a, at a, like a protest occupation, it's a lot to occupy a space. The logistics are very complicated. But you had people who have complex um, daily care and medical needs occupying a building to an extent that it is a physical a bodily sacrifice above and beyond just a regular occupation of like where for the ape, like people ape, that are able-bodied occupying a space. I mean. And they do touch on some of that. I think they talk about not having 
you know, organizing people to help turn people who are paralyzed and need to avoid bed sores. They talk about rigging up a refrigeration for medication that needs to be kept cold. They they talk about having trouble access accessing um, catheters. Um, a number of people who are wheelchair users um, need to be catheterized in order to use the bathroom. Um, it's like there's a lot of really complicated medical issues they're dealing with and and not being able to address those on the kind of schedule that people normally use is really dangerous. Like these people were putting their health, their safety on the line in a really, really pretty extreme way, I think, in a lot of cases. Yeah, for some of this, the line between, um, well, that's going to be uncomfortable and that could risk future hospitalization and life-threatening complications is really, really narrow. Yeah, I mean, and that really struck me about this, um, about the 504 sit-ins, that like the chances of people winding up in the hospital with with pneumonia or UTIs or sepsis or something is like really high. You know, There's this moment in that part of the film, oh man, where the um, commissioner of, the commissioner at the federal level sends like one of his staff members in to talk with them. And he just kind of like says like whatever, blah, 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 blah. And just he does the talking head thing and then leaves the room. And Judy Human is she's so frustrated and she's so tired at that point. I think that really that really struck me. That was a moment where like she's trying to hold it together. And she basically says to him, like, you've you know, that you have no intention of listening to us. You have no intention of helping us. You know, I mean, she just like rips them apart and then, but they wind up with like two Congress people on their side and then this reporter and things start to change. But that's like a turning point, like this moment um, and it's captured on film. And I like felt like I was punched in the gut watching it. I mean, cause she was clearly so tired and she's trying to hold it together for all these people that she feels responsible for. Yeah. And this is a, like that moment is a changing point in, getting 504 signed 504 is signed it is a significant legal precursor to the americans with disabilities act that comes around almost 20 years later 504 is the reason why i have the right to be educated in a public school in the united states yeah there are still school districts where like uh individualized education plans are referred to under the 504 but it's also if you dig into some of the writing about it it's one of the moves from oh you poor disabled person to a social model of disability which we talk about i think in our q a one a while ago on several levels this is what lays the groundwork for the level of rights and access that is built upon in the ada that is still not quite could be more universal but is significant right and so the issue with the 504 is that it refer it relates to federal buildings and institutions and the recipients of federal money. So it has no bearing. So it's a big deal um, as far as things like college attendance, like the ability, um, the opportunity for people who are disabled to attend college explodes at that point because you're able to be accommodated, right? Um, And you're required to be accommodated. And not all colleges, but a good percentage of colleges do actually follow the law. But all private, any kind of private accommodation, privately owned accommodation of any kind of place where the public can go, but is privately owned, isn't covered. And that's this huge 
huge issue leading up to the ADA. Like, yeah, you can get into the classroom at school, but you can't get into any business. So it kind of like the movie kind of moves forward in time at that point. And a lot of those, um, a lot of the folks that were part of that original movement are still there and they're still working and they start working for the, for the passage of the ADA. As you move sort of on from 504, they don't spend a lot of time on the ADA, I think, because then you'd have to have like a three movies. Yeah, I know. I was going to say like, that's a whole, like by the time you get to the ADA, there's only this like little sliver of the movie left. Judy Human, who's come up a few times and several other people are, they're, they're still living. They're still active in disability rights issues. I think Judy Human might be the most, sort of the biggest public name because she worked in both the Clinton and Obama administrations and has done disability organizing and, and activism around the world. She has a, a memoir out about some of this that I have not read yet, but definitely it's on my list. But I love the title. It's uh, Being Human. The ADA passage, there's not, again, there's not a lot on it, um, but the they had some footage of the like now famous Capitol Crawl, which like I don't remember this at all from that I don't time either. period. I remember the passage of the ADA, but I don't remember. I don't remember that either. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion about it kind of in the world and the universe. And it's the kind of thing you hear as a high school student and you hear people talk about it in certain ways. And you're kind of like, I'm literally sitting right here. I hear you. And I hear you might not be talking about me. You think you're talking about people who are not like me or have different disabilities than me. But I hear you and I'm feeling really irritated and insulted right now because I could easily be one of them instead of one of me. So I remember people complaining about how expensive it was going to be, how much work it was going to be, how many disabled people are there really anyway. Like uh, there was a lot of stuff, the kind of complaints you still hear. Like, Yeah, I don't remember the passage of the ADA, but I do remember as I got more active in church things in sort of the later 90s. I remember who told me and with what emotions that churches were exempt from a lot of ADA stuff. Because there was a lot of campaigning to not have accessibility laws apply to churches. And there were there were churches that have like had a lot of money and power that spent a lot of effort on that lobbying. And, you know, the faith-based stuff is basically absent from this film. Yeah, this is a very secular film. We wanted to do it both because we know the impact camp can have and we want to like it touches on such important aspects of disability history but stephanie you had when we were you know starting to plan for actually recording this said like the faith stuff is not explicitly addressed but it's like there's an undercurrent of it there's an assumption that god is at work in this well i mean i guess i don't know what the people involved would say but this is my my personal my personal assumption it's some of these things, you know, they're like the book of Esther. God's never mentioned, but God's running through the whole thing. So one of the things that they talk about is that they felt like Camp Janet, for them, it was, this was utopia. And so, so when I think about that, that experience and what that experience looked like and the pieces of it that re- led, like remind me of things and the, even the 504 sit-ins and you start to, to me, it starts to look like, what does the kingdom of God look like? right? What does it feel like to be in the kingdom of God? How, how do you feel? How do other people relate to you? How are you connected with others? How are you taking care of? I see that in the Camp Janet footage. I see that in the 504 sit-in footage. I see that in when they're working in the independent living center and they're 
like they're answering the phone. I'm like, yeah, no, no, we got you. You have any problems? You just call us and whatever. We're here. We're, we've got solutions. You know, you've got a community behind you, whatever the question or issue was. You know, I see that running through the movie. And then again, in the in my own experiences that I'm relating to that time, that's what it, it felt like. It's like there's this there's times and spaces that have been, oh, this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God rises out of the ground and exists in a place. That, I guess, for me, I see that as in the, the, again, it's a very secular movie, but the image of the kingdom of God is just running through, it's present throughout it. That's not in the film, but it is, there are spiritual topics and themes and things related to it. And to me also, there's this profound self-sacrifice piece, not just like, you know, you pick up your cross or whatever, but you know what? It's a lot easier to pick up your cross if you're doing it with your friends and, and that's what they do. And the stories of what they go through and the footage of what they go through is, it's a little wild sometimes. I mean, the whole thing where they're like, we didn't have a way to get around DC. So the machinist union got us some moving trucks. Drove us around in the dark in the back of a moving truck. Right. But like that is, but that is the kind of thing that you can, (laughs) it's ridiculous and it's dangerous actually, but that's the kind of thing you can do with the right community for the right reason. I think that is sort of shines a light on what we talk about when we talk about, you know, communities where people are connected by like love that's greater than just sort of the garden variety kind of love. Right. That to me has a real strong spiritual element to it. And that, that very much the self-sacrifice and the thing of like ride or die. Like I knew you at Camp, Camp Janet and now you're doing this thing and we're going to try to make things better. Like, and I, I'm on board. I mean, oh my gosh. That is, um, it, it has very strong spiritual elements to it. Very strong, like Acts, Book of Acts community sort of vibe to it. Yeah, I think um, of like Barnabas bringing Paul back to Jerusalem. And everyone there is like, who did you just walk in with? And what do you want us to do? And he's like, no, we all know each other. We did intense things together. We're going to let him back in. Um, it's like, yeah, no, I will spend 25 days in a government building and what might be a feudal sit-in. Sure, it's Judy Human. I know her from camp. Right? <laughs> Very yes. like parallel yes. emotion and reasoning. Like, yeah, of course I can do that. Yeah, I'll go anywhere with these people. So if you have not watched, if you've listened to all of this and you have not watched it, it is definitely worth watching. We cannot. Uh, yeah, there's just no way to do it justice. It is really phenomenal. If you're listening to this because you're like, I've. I can do a podcast. I'm not going to do another movie. That's not how my life works. Um, one of the things I want to make sure we say explicitly is a part of the joy for me in the movie is that while it does not ignore the challenges of living, especially in like a pre-ADA, pre-504 world as a disabled person with accessibility needs, it doesn't focus on them. So like I can tell you that the Camp Jened was not actually built for disabled people because you see in the clips like stairs and people getting themselves upstairs but that is never the point of it those sorts of barriers are discussed in terms of the 504 sit-in to help us understand the community that existed in that but it's not like uh, you know here is our list of complaints that we suffered through it's like this is how life functioned for us which was really um humanizing 
Yeah. Both for the people in the movie, I hope and assume because they were involved in putting it together, but also as someone who sometimes feels like I get reduced to uh, my medical charts. We laughed so hard at a lot of the Camp Janet footage. The sense of humor and the joy and the whatever uh, was infectious. Like we just... You're like, this is hilarious. And this is like every group of teenagers we have ever hung out with. There really is something timeless about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just such camp, right? It's camp. This is what camp's like. Every ca- like camps are like this. Oh, it was so funny. So, so funny because it's some teenagers and it's summer camp. And there's one part where the... There's one teenage girl who's like, it's my one week anniversary with so-and-so. Yes. And it was the most oh. summer camp thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, these really important and really serious things grow out of that time. But also there is such joy and delight in watching teenagers be teenagers. Yeah, it, it was very clear that this was about, it's my one week anniversary. I This is where I could date. This is where I had my first kiss. And what did they have for food on Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) We still don't know. (laughs) uh, Yeah. It was eight weeks. They probably had both options at different times. (laughs) Right. We still don't know what they had. It's unusual for me to sit down and watch something about people who had a direct impact on my life, impact on my life and what I had, was able to do and what like the rights that I have had. I mean, the 504 made a difference to me. The ADA made a difference to me. Um, just it's a really huge deal. And I'm sure my, sure my parents would have like fought through and found a way because there were always people who did. And there were always parents who found a way to get their kids what they needed and to get the, you know, to make sure that they had education and accommodations and whatever. Yeah, the things that are possible because this was more widespread and you weren't spending extra energy to get basic needs met. Right. Because you at least had an IEP that you could go, you know, my poor mom, I uh, I told Dan last night that my third grade teacher didn't believe in like frankly basically didn't believe in accommodations and didn't want to teach disabled kids didn't want to have disabled kids mainstreamed in his class like he found it like to be a huge problem for him and my poor mother was like up to the school like literally back then you would literally go up to school like do 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 i'm up to i'm in the principal's office and and like complain about things you know it was not like an email or whatever like you would literally go up to school to see what the heck was going on up there and um and my mom was up to school like a whole lot that year about this third grade teacher but you know she had stuff to back it up she had i had an iep there were people on my side there was a a mandated um state organization who was responsible for having a caseworker that came to school to make sure that they were doing what they were supposed to do for me that's a huge difference between just fight that and fighting all by yourself and trying to get your maybe get your kid moved to a different classroom or something right and then next year I had a fourth grade teacher who was a wonderful human who would have done anything that needed to happen for her students no matter what it didn't 504 notwithstanding didn't matter like she it she would have always been great but and both categories of teachers at every level of education continue to exist uh how do we want to wrap this up 
That's a good question. I, I think, um, you know, like there, it, well, you know what, this topic isn't, there is no way this topic isn't wrapped up, I think, in a larger sense, because there is no way that it's an ongoing issue. The ADA did a lot of things. And again, the ADA only applies to the United States. Of course, we're only speaking of the United States in this particular. Yeah, for all the imperfections of the ADA, I do see international, or I mean, non-US disability activists really bemoaning not having even that much in their country. It does do an, an important and significant thing. You know, there there are a lot of things that are good about it. There are a lot of issues with it. There are a lot of calls in more recent times for new legislation and for updates and things because they're... Even just for actual enforcement. Yeah, there are a lot of categories in which no progress has been made and there is no enforcement mechanism other than lawsuits. And nobody's got time or money or energy for lawsuits. So um, accommodations go just completely un unenforced. Um, and the unemployment rate among the disabled in the United States remains the same as it was back then, because there's no, there's no real education or enforcement. So there's that. But then like our focus is the church and the church does and has always done its own thing on these issues. And that is a huge concern. One of the thoughts I had as we, we look back at the church, and this is a conversation you and I have had a couple of times recently about the, the importance of disabled community and how hard that is to find within the church for a host of different reasons, including having some concept that disabled community might benefit you. <laughs> but one of my first thoughts on finishing the movie is this is why we'll continue having that conversation about how do we do work that helps create space and build up disabled community and understanding both internal to that community and external to it. There's just a long, long way to go. I think the church is in many ways is far behind certain segments of secular society on this issue. There is a, so much activity around DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in the church right now. And that's great. But disability continues to be left out of the out of the equation. It is not discussed when other DEI issues are being discussed. There are pieces throughout any process where these things get brought up or whatever, where it's not accessible even to necessarily complain about it. Like finding a way to complain about it and finding a way to get heard about it is really hard in any system. It's very, it's, it's really difficult. It just keeps getting left out over and over again. And then you don't even like, again, I don't even know who to who to say something to. Yeah. How do you say something that will be either heard if what you need to do is be heard or might actually prompt some level of change or growth on behalf of the institution? And maybe what you need is both. I don't know. I don't have a good sort of wrap up, you know, for this, whether for the movie or for how it might pertain to the church, um, because it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing conversation. Again, if you have made it this far and you have not watched it, I strongly encourage watching it. Yes, it was fantastic. We will link to, there's a, a website that has like the trailer and some other resources that came out about the same time the movie came out. It looks like there's also a 504 sit-in documentary on YouTube. So we'll link to that and some of the other it will probably be Wikipedia if you do not want to Google those things for yourself, but the Wikipedia is very good at some things. And then the Ed Roberts episode from Stuff You Missed in History Class, which is quite good. 
So you can go learn more about the history of disability rights and activism and, and people who really helped shape what our present world looks like. been listening to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability, hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. We record on the traditional land of the Lenni Lenape and Treaty 6 territory. If you like The Accessible Altar, please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts. For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealtar.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Altar and join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, email us at AccessibleAltar at gmail.com. (laughs) 